All right, so now let's move on from medieval times to the Reformation, right? And the primary concern of the Protestant reformers of the 16th century was the doctrine of salvation. So that's what the, their issue was, right? In their view, the Aristotelianism of the scholastics, right? These are the the medieval folks, um, you know, whose teachings in the 16th century was basically based on the Roman Catholic system, uh, led to a confusion and perversion of the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Moreover, uh, the Renaissance was marked by an um, infatuation with pagan antiquity, especially Plato and Neoplatonism, and the result was a further corruption of the Christian message in what came to be known as humanism. And so the Reformers then, with regard to their apologetics, fought against this particular idea, especially the corruption of the idea of salvation that had emerged out of the medieval time and the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Right. So you're just still dealing with uh, elements of paganism, but you're also now dealing with elements of Roman Catholicism and also of Islam as well. So um, the, the the people during the Reformation time uh, are uh, laying on even more onto themselves on on uh, how they're responding, how, how they're apologizing, how you know to to whom is their message curtailed, and from where do they uh, draw their source for for pointing to uh, the truth uh, of 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 the the message of God. Well, originally humanism was essentially an intellectual approach to literature and learning, emphasizing the study of the classics and of the Bible directly instead of through medieval commentaries. Hmm, okay. So instead of going through the teacher, you go back to the sources. I wonder if there's a term for that. Yeah. And so obviously this was the, depending on commentaries, was the whole idea of scholasticism, right? So in other words, you you basically quoted all of the right. early folks in their commentaries, and mm -hmm. that's, you know, that's how you <clears throat> learned, right? And yeah. so this was a movement against just dependent on these <clears throat> commentaries. And and you, you saw that even during <clears throat> Jesus' day with Talmudic Judaism is always uh, you know, this teacher is referenced by this teacher is referenced by this teacher that that goes back to maybe Moses, maybe Abraham, but it's to a respected teacher lineage of of your ideas. And so when Jesus uh, is teaching <clears throat> the the um, Pharisees look around and say, who is this man that he's teaching as one of authority, meaning he's not quoting the, the people that we quote. So what's he doing? He's he's saying that he has the truth. He has this knowledge and he's drawing it directly from the scriptures. That's not what we do. And so here again, we're revitalizing the, that approach that that, uh, that Christ did. Well, by the uh, 16th century, though, Catholic humanism, as represented, for instance, by uh, Aramaeus, was characterized by a man-centered philosophy emphasizing human dignity and freedom at the expense of biblical teaching of sin and grace. And so uh, it kind of got uh, our, our two two realms uh, kind of switched there uh, with uh, with uh, what we want to focus on. And so um, here the Reformation comes uh, forward and says, I, th I think we, we might have this flipped around where we might want to go uh, back to a biblical teaching and then uh, put that into context of how we view things like human dignity and freedom. Right. And so the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone was the heart and soul of the ministry of uh, folks like Martin Luther, right? 1483 to 1546. 
Uh, he was an Augustinian monk who lit the torch of the Reformation with his 95 Thesis, protesting legalistic abuses in the uh, church at the time. So in Luther's estimation, reason, particularly as employed in medieval theology, had obscured the gospel of justification. And so he therefore emphasized the limitations of reason and rejected the traditional theological project of employing logic and philosophy to kind of explain and expiate and defend the Christian faith. Right. Right. And, and so the, he's going to we're going to come back to this kind of approach right. uh, in one of the major methods with regard to apologetics that this our book here is going to uh, consider. Right. And historically, we have to look at, you know, Luther wasn't looking for the fight to, to, to knock down the, uh, the the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, you know, the, 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 the 95 Theses and the hammering on the door of the famous painting that we can picture in our mind is him just putting up a flyer going, hey, I'd like to really talk about this uh, with somebody. It was the early day podcast uh, is, is what he was <laughs> he was wanting. And so, um, you know, he he uh, he um, had somebody uh, probably take down the the, the publishing that he did. Uh, again, this was around the time where Gutenberg um, uh, uh, printing press was able to to mass produce. And so they took the 95 thesis and uh, printed up more and more to to kind of start a movement that uh, I don't think he was exactly ready for, but at the same time, he was exactly ready for it. So hmm. um, it's it's uh, something that we can be um, grateful for <laughs> there. All right, well, Luther admitted that non-Christians can gain a general knowledge about God through reason, discerning that a God exists and that he is good and powerful and the like. However, reason is incapable of helping them know who the true God is or how to be justified in his sight. Such particular knowledge is available only in the gospel and can be appropriated only uh, by faith. Not only is reason unhelpful in gaining a saving knowledge of God, it's actually an enemy of faith. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. stop being so reasonable, That's it's right. getting in the way. That's right. That's probably right. not the most, the most generous <laughs> reading of that, but right. uh, we, we, again, we have to understand things in context and what's uh, being said. And the nice thing about that is these guys like to write and people like to publish them. So, uh, so it is out there. And so we, we, we can have a, a, a non uh, uh, mediated uh, uh, understanding of these people's writings if we actually read them. Right. Good. So Bo and Bowman tell us that if Luther was the father and chief polemicist of the Reformation, John Calvin, 1509 to 1564, was arguably its chief theologian. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion and Biblical Commentaries are still read and discussed today even by non-theologians, right. right? And as with Luther, Calvin's <clears throat> principal apologetic labors were directed against the Roman Catholic criticisms of the Reformation gospel of, you know, um, faith, right? Uh, faith and, and grace mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing with regard to the Reformation and the belief that the Roman Catholic Church had. Uh, you know, not bad for a Frenchman uh, who, uh, who, who, you know, uh, at the age of 26, uh, writes the thing that uh, probably moved most of the Western world into a, a more positive direction, uh, ch changed the ideas of uh, 
how people talked about religion and uh, understanding uh, kicked off probably wars uh, with it as well. And uh, so, you know, uh, um, uh, in, in his own right, uh, um, uh, pretty impressive uh, life uh, before he reaches the age of 30. And then to go on and do more of what he did is uh, pretty impressive as well. Well, unlike Luther, uh, Calvin held that faith is always reasonable. However, he also insisted that faith also seems unreasonable to us because our reason is blinded by sin and spiritual deception. So when we talked about the noetic effect of sin, which uh, at the time of this recording is our second most popular uh, video uh, out, out uh, it might be because of the, uh, the, the fun um, uh, cover photo that I gave for it, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but that, uh, that effect of sin uh, degrades our reasoning and so it, it it puts you know a a, a a rope around it and we're unable to to reach up and out and fully experience what uh a a unrestrained reason uh looks like and so um uh calvin tries to put in line a scriptural basis for um the, the use of reason but it's not so outside the realm that they don't touch well here he says that such blindness is evident in the philosophies of the pagans Romans 2, which at times comes close to recognizing the truth, but in the end always distorts the truth of God's revelation of himself in nature. To remedy our spiritual blindness, God has given us his word in scripture, so there's the specific revelation, which is so much clearer and fuller in its revelation and through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. God has also given us his spirit who enables us to understand his word. So there we're, we're given a renewed mind by Christ, and then we're given God's spirit to help enable us to help understand his word, which then helps us to understand more about his general, uh, about his specific revelation and see the general revelation in a fuller, more complete context with the author of that revelation telling us uh, even more uh, uh, about what we see and experience in the world. And again, uh, uh, from Calvin's Institute, he kicks it off by, by having the census divinitas that uh, all people have, uh, but still views it as um, uh, as subjected to uh, the, the presence of sin and so is distorted. So mm -hmm. we're, we're mm -hmm. looking at things askew, but we still have some understanding. Uh, we don't even have to look at the night sky, but when we do look at the night sky, uh, we uh, in and of ourselves, we recognize that uh, God is the creator. He is there and there's certain quality and aspects about him. And so he's pointing back to uh, the, the scriptural um, motifs that uh, Paul uh, has in, in Romans as well. Mm, yeah, good. All right, so next we move to our next major uh, movement here. Um, uh, Bowen Bowman tells us that apologetics faces skepticism, right? So until the post-Reformation period, most Europeans took Christianity for granted, and, and the major religious debates were primarily intra-Christian, right? Disputes about the meaning of specific key terms of the faith and of salvation and that sort of thing. But the 17th century saw the rise of religious skepticism that challenged the very truth of the Christian faith. So this skepticism led to new developments in apologetics now that we'll begin to see and will spread now into our own uh, modern era. Right. So still dealing with paganism, still dealing with Roman Catholics, still dealing with uh, Islam. And now to heap on to those people that want to say that God doesn't even exist. So now you got to go all the way back to square one to, to, to deal with that, right? Well, in his classic work, uh, 
Thoughts, the French Catholic mathematician and apologist uh, Blaise Pascal from 1623 to 1662, rejected the traditional uh, rational arguments for God's existence and emphasized the personal relational aspects involved in a non-Christian coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He was one of the first apologists to argue that apologetics, apologetics should take into account the differences among people. So uh, he's, you know, here's your, your, um, your, your psychology uh, aspect uh, to Christianity here. Christians who would defend the faith must seek to show that it was not irrational and it was great news if it is true. And in fact, it can be proved to be true. So you, mm. you do have a positive approach uh, with uh, Pascal as well. All right, good, yeah. And so, you know, here's the issue, though. Despite the eloquence of the de and depth, by the way, of uh, Pascal's thoughts, right, his peonies, his approach to the defense of the faith was to remain, quite frankly, a minority report. Right. Natural science, through such giants as Galileo and Newton and, that, and those folks, achieved major breakthroughs during the 17th century and revolutionized our uh, view of the world. And so in the wake of these developments, most apologetics for the next three centuries understood the apologetic test as primarily one of showing notice the scientific credibility of the Christian faith. And then more broadly, apologetics became focused on providing empirical evidence, whether scientific or historical, in support of the Christian faith. So we had this huge movement as a result of the scientific revolution. Right, right. And Pascal is way more uh, uh, depth to him than just his, uh, his wager that, uh, that we all like to, uh, to, to talk about. To bet on, yeah, that's <laughs> right. right. <laughs> well, the classical work of apologetics in an empirical mode was a Joseph Butler's book, The Analogy of Religion, Natural and Revealed to the Constitution and Course of Nature. Yes, yeah. those right. those guys had a mouthful of their uh, titles with their right. books. Yeah, print, print by the word, yeah. <laughs> the, the poor typesetters. Oh, man. <laughs> well, and that was published in 1736. But Butler, yeah. uh, who existed from 1692 to 1752. So again, we're getting closer to uh, that modern age. An Anglican bishop sought to diffuse the objections to Orthodox Christian faith posed by deists who favored a purely natural religion that was in principle available to all people in all times and places that could be proved by reason. So, uh, you know, a, a general God exists and uh, this may be the blind watchmaker who, who uh, orders the world, sure, but he's definitely not there. And so he's, he's wind up the watch, he's set it out, which is the universe and he's walked away. And so now it's up to us to, to, to live correctly and rightly and, uh, we can come up with our own ideas of what is um, uh, chivalry and 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 good ethics, uh, but it's definitely not the God out there who uh, has a specific revelation for us, uh, but only kind of this general aspect to uh, uh, a, a God. Right. And so Butler argued in response to this, that the intellectual difficulties found by these deists in believing that the, the Christian revelation have a... Uh, you know, just revealed a God who was kind of out there somewhat, right? Um, he argued that uh, the Christian revelation had analogies in our knowledge of the natural world. 
his use of analogies, right? So comparing one thing with another was not intended to prove either that God exists or that Christianity was true, but merely that it was not unreasonable to believe in the Christian revelation. And so throughout uh, his book, Butler's approach was empirical, right? He looked at empirical evidence, the facts of the world and that sort of thing, focused uh, focus on those uh, things, right? Facts and evidence. And the conclusions were couched in terms of probability, right? And so right. this was a probabilistic approach. Right. And again, as, as we go through this portion of the chapter, um, see, see what we're emphasizing as far as uh, the, the, the types of evidences and the type of outcomes that, um, that each of uh, these, these guys are coming up with. Uh, some are, are saying, uh, no, we can't know. Uh, others are saying, uh, you know, uh, in relation to uh, with both reason and faith, we can know. And the others are saying, uh, no, it's only th- uh, first through, through revelation that comes about. And then through reason, can we uh, come to uh, understanding? And there are people that uh, that are saying, oh, well, the evidence will show a probability of of God, God existing uh, through the evidence. And so, again, uh, what uh, what our authors are doing are is is propping us to 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 um uh get get our our ducks in a row when it comes to the four different uh uh overviews of apologetic methods and so we're we're seeing that play out in history and it's not just one era one time period one belief system of of the proper way to go it's people have different emphases uh that uh, that uh are coming about uh and and how they're responding and what they're responding to that m- might be formulating it so uh, um, hopefully, uh, you, uh, have been paying attention to that. If not, you can always go back, uh, and, and we do short clips of, of these things, uh, so that you can go back and you can say, okay, uh, uh, what, what version did Pascal, um, um, uh, believe or, or how about, uh, uh Aquinas or how was he in, uh, different to, to, uh, Calvin? And so you can go back, uh, more easily and, and do that. Uh, but also the, uh, the, um, chapter breaks are in the uh, descriptions as well. And so you can find that at uh, YouTube and all the different places as well. All right, uh, so moving on to the rise of modern apologetics, Butler's apologetic uh, efforts in the analogy of religion was widely regarded as a worthy response to the natural religion of the deist. However, Christian apologetics was forced to reinvent itself at, with the advent of the Enlightenment, because of that skeptic, uh, skepticism of the Scottish philosopher David Hume. So Hume, a big, big name from 1711 to 1776, prepared the way for this movement, which rejected all revelation claims and all natural religion or natural theology and declared the autonomy of human reason. Yeah. Hume convinced many that uh, teleological or design arguments, the arguments for miracles, and other standard Christian apologetic arguments were unsound to throw them away and to do away with them. And so he's got the the only answer, and it's only through what you can see, smell, touch, hear, taste, uh, and 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 relate to uh, one another. That's that's, that's the right. only truth out there. Yeah, experience, empiricism, the idea that experience gives us is the source of knowledge, right? Our empirical experiences. And of course, the German German Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant, right, who lived uh, 1724 to 1804, he reported having been awakened from his 
dogmatic slumbers by Hume's <laughs> writings, right? <laughs> and he likewise critiqued the cosmological and ontological arguments for the existence of God. And so these successive ways of attacks uh, on Christianity forced Orthodox Christians to develop apologetic responses. So notice, you know, even though they're setting us up for these four different views, methods of apolog apologetics, also what they're showing through this kind of historical walk here is how Christianity had to respond to the various arguments of the day, right? right. And how it did that and, and uh, what types of uh, approaches that it did in order to respond to the arguments of the day. One of the early apologists to respond to Hume was William Paley. Uh, Paley systematized the evidential arguments of the time into two works, a view of the evidence of Christianity and natural theology. The later works was a classical presentation of the teleological argument. The force of his apologetic was severely weakened, though, by the rise of evolutionary biology in the late 19th century. Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, which was uh, published in 1859, seemed to offer a naturalistic explanation for the order and diversity in life, encouraging many in the West to abandon belief in God as the creator. So we don't need God anymore. We've got this way where uh, we know where bananas come from and we know where uh, birds with different size beaks comes about. Uh, and it's through this uh, <laughs> gradual uh, changes uh, that come out to be full changes so that way after a while the the birds uh, slowly turn into uh, not birds and uh, become other things uh, right so you go from bananas no, dinosaurs to bird. into birds yeah. that's right bananas bird beaks to bob right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so uh an older contemporary our authors tell us of uh paley was um thomas reed so he was a scottish calvinist who developed a philosophy later known as the scottish common sense realism, right? And um, Reed's philosophy, like Paley, was in large part an answer to his fellow countryman, Hume. Whereas Hume had, Hume had been skeptical, not only of miracles and the existence of God, but also of cause and effect, go figure, right? <laughs> and of the objective right and wrong, morality itself. Reed held that our, uh, that our knowledge of all of these things was simply a matter of common sense, right? And so this was a common sense uh, movement that uh, Reed led. Right. Well, Reed's epistemology or theory of knowledge was dominant at Princeton Theological Seminary when Princeton used to be a Christian college in the 19th <laughs> and early 20th century. The old Princetonians affirmed that one could argue for the truths of Christian revelation on the basis of common sense presuppositions about the nature of truth, reason, morality, and the world. Then you had Charles Hodge from 1797 to 1878, the most famous Calvinist the theologian at Old Princeton, maintained that although reason must submit to God's revelation in Scripture, reason must first discern whether Christian whether Scripture is indeed a revelation from God. The non-Christian must therefore be in, uh, invited to use reason and common sense to evaluate the evidences, which are miracles, fulfilled prophecies, etc., for Christianity. And then you had uh, Benjamin Breckenfield Warfield, 1851 to 1921, one of the last professors at Princeton before its uh, reorganization and shift to liberal theology and a continued Hodge apologetic approach. And these two guys, uh, um, among others, uh, are, are, are worth studying, worth reading 
uh, the, the, the term fundamentalism before it became a pejorative uh, is, is because of, of guys like uh, Warfield and the, 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 the way that they undertook uh, neo-orthodoxy and, 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 and liberalism, um, they, they at least put off the, 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 um, the downturn even more of, of America uh, from, from their work. And so uh, looking at uh, Christian um, church history uh, during this turn of the 20th century is, uh, is pretty stellar uh, with, with guys like these. Good. And then uh, James Orr, he was a Scottish theologian, 1844 to 1913, responded to the Enlightenment challenge as well. He was one of the first apologists to present Christianity as a worldview, arguing that the weight of the evidence from various quarters supported the, the Christian view of God and the world. Um, in the Netherlands, uh, one of Orr's contemporaries, the Calvinist theologian and politician, Abraham Kuyper, 1837 to 1920, developed the notion of the antithesis. There is, Kuiper told us, an absolute antithesis between the two sets of principles to which Christians and non-Christians are fundamentally committed. For example, God as sovereign, right, in control of his world and his creation, versus man as autonomous, right? And so, in short, Christians and non-Christians, Kuiper argued, cannot see eye to eye on matters of fundamental principles. And right. so we we see this idea that, and which we'll see next year, that there's really no neutrality, right, because of these different perspectives. Right. The um, Bonson book that we went through uh, um, a couple books ago, uh, the third book in that series is Pushing the Antithesis. And so um, uh, if you want to know more, uh, that series uh, has a good understanding of, of, of developing uh, what, uh, what Kuiper had there. All right. Well, he said, uh, therefore, Christianity cannot be proved to non-Christians on the basis of philosophical arguments or historical evidences because these presuppose Christian principles. This is starting to sound really familiar here. I wonder why. <laughs> there can be no common or neutral ground between Christians and non-Christians. And again, uh, the, the the neutrality is to say, okay, uh, atheist, you start with nothing, and I, the Christian, I'll set down my Bible, and I'll start with nothing. Go. Okay, well, wh what are you doing? Uh, what do you, uh, okay, there's a bone in the dirt. Uh, okay, th now we have to trust our senses, and we have to, uh, come to understanding of 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 um, a passage of time. We we have to uh, assume that the world didn't start five minutes ago. That uh, that uh, our eyes tell us uh, things that are that are uh, somewhat there, so we can move past just the bone is in the dirt. Can we can we uh, assume certain things about it? So uh, we, we're 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 not all starting from this neutral starting point. That that uh, there are presuppositions that we are bringing into the, the foyer of the conversation that we cannot leave off to the side. And it would be uh, disadvantageous of us to, 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 to try and do so, but it's also would be essentially a lie to say yeah. that we can. Exactly. Well, thus traditional apologetics must be abandoned. No traditionalism here. Negatively, uh, Christian apologists should seek to expose the anti-Christian religious roots of all non-Christian thought. Positively, they should attempt to model the truth of Christianity to the world by reconstructing society according to biblical principles. And again, uh, we have the offensive and the defensive uh, aspects of of, um, 
of apologetics here. Right. And so one Christian thinker influenced by Kuiper was uh, our good friend Cornelius Van Til, <laughs> right, which we've talked about lots on this program, uh, 1895 to 1987. He was a professor of apologetics at Westminster Theological Seminary, and Van Til's approach was essentially a creative synthesis, our authors tell us, of the old Princetonian, right, the Princeton view from B.B. Warfield and Hodge and that sort of thing, um, combined with Kuiperism uh, with regard to philosophical and apologetic positions. And so for Van Til, the greatest mistake in traditional apologetics was in using rationalistic arguments that concluded that the truth of Christianity are probably true. He thought such probabilistic arguments, which he claimed dominated apologetics since Butler's analogy, detracted from the centrality of faith and the absolute authority of Scripture as the written word of God. Right. Right. How certain are you? Well, uh, I am 87% certain that uh, <laughs> Christ right. rose from the dead. Uh, I don't know what 86% certainty would look like. <laughs> so he's he's trying to uh, kind of get us past that and and, and have a true f- formation of, of uh, faith grounded in certainty. Well, in place of such arguments, he, uh, uh, Van Til, urged Christian apologists to argue by presuppositions. Such a presupposition apologetic has two steps. Oh, I thought we were getting away from two steps. Never mind. <laughs> Let, let's throw this out. No, no. These are two different types of steps. Well, the first one, he says, the first step is to show that non-Christian systems of thought are incapable of accounting for counting, for accounting for rationality, for accounting for morality. It's to show that ultimately all non-Christian systems, again, not just atheism, not just uh, 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 a different type of scientism, but all non-Christian systems of thought fall into a rationalism. Right. So notice what he does here. Instead of the first step being, well, let's prove that God exists and then show that, you know, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that the scriptures are true and that sort of thing. He goes on the attack. Uh, with regard to the non-Christian worldview. And he tries to show not that God exists, but that they're irrational and not believing that God exists, right? And so that's kind of a a different kind of first-step approach than we see in classical apologetics. Right. And so then the second step is to not leave them this this, uh, blank slate after you've destroyed their worldview to show that it's (laughs) irrational. But the second step is to commend the Christian view as giving the only possible presuppositional foundation for thought and life. For Van Til, such a presuppositional argument is only legitimate apologetic method. So that's right. the one he uh, put forth. It's one that uh, other people have, have uh, taken and run with it. And uh, it uh, seems to be gaining popularity. And it's also going to be one of the four that uh, we talk about uh, throughout uh, this book as well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. All right. And then uh, next, our authors move us on to C.S. Lewis, right? Uh, 1898 to 1963. He was a scholar of uh, medieval literature who converted to Christianity in his midlife. And of course, the more, among the most popular arguments that he developed was the trilemma, right? <laughs> it was uh, that it was later called this. He suggested that uh, and argued since Jesus claimed to be God, one must either first reject him as a liar, right? Or secondly, dismiss, dismiss him as a lunatic 
or thirdly, accept him as Lord, right? So liar, lunatic, or Lord. And since the first two alternatives contradicts Jesus Christ's evident sincerity and sanity, Lewis argued he must be, uh, he, you know, he concluded then that Jesus must be Lord, right? And so this was the trilemma. Is he the liar, lunatic, or Lord? Well, clearly he wasn't a liar or a lunatic, as we can see from the character of his life, and so he must be Lord. And so Lewis's writings have had a tremendous influence on Christian apologetics, uh, uh, even to this day. Yeah. And I know, especially in kind of reform circles, it's uh, it's um, popular to kind of poo-poo on mere Christianity. But uh, I, I think that book, probably more than anything, uh, almost negates fetism uh, completely. Uh, I, I, th I think it's a, a very well-written book, and it's, it's, uh, it's a great introduction for uh, people to kind of get their feet wet, uh, especially in Lewis's writing. So obviously he's not... Uh, He's not taking you down a trip to Narnia, but he his his style of writing. I I I took a whole summer and I read everything that I possibly could get of his, and uh, and you really get a scope for um, his writing style and, and the person that he is. Um, and then if if you really want to upset yourself, go read Miracles because Miracles is a presuppositional argument that he puts forth of of yeah. uh, the the ability or inability to believe in miracles and i think uh that's uh that that's one that's uh, uh probably lost uh for the non-reformed uh people uh in in the back of libraries but uh, yeah I, and i think that book is probably one of his most philosophical books definitely, definitely. you know mere christianity was really a series of lectures that he gave on the radio mm -hmm. uh to to his uh, british audiences but he really focused uh and uh, arguments, uh, philosophical arguments in the book on, on miracles. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, if, if, uh, if I, you removed his name from the cover and I, you were to give it uh, to somebody, uh, they would accuse you of, of giving you something by Van Tiller Bonson. Uh, Cause it just, <laughs> it just reads exactly like that. Uh, maybe with a, a more, uh, British flair to it, but yes. Well, evangelical apologetics was dominated in the second half of the 20th century by the debates over Van Til's presuppositionalism. So During this is really interesting that they bring out here, right? So notice the second half of the 20th century, Van Til, one side or the other, how your position with regard to Van Til right. dominated, right, the apologetic discussion. Right, yeah. So during the 1950s, three American apologists offered three different answers to Van Til's challenge to traditional apologetics. So again, took three people to to try and <laughs> overtake one person, uh, and so uh, I'm sure he wouldn't see that, and I'm sure they probably wouldn't either as well. But uh, but it, it is interesting the impact uh, that he had. That again uh, uh, would probably draw back to uh, uh, Augustine himself uh, uh, d uh, certain points of 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 the argumentation. Well, one of these people was uh, Gordon H. Clark, so 1902 to 1985, the reform philosopher whose emphasis on deductive logic led to fierce debates with Van Til that divided presuppositionalist movement even today. And you'll you'll find those uh, Clarkians and and uh, <laughs> um, uh, Bonsons, and and so those are going to be two camps and. Uh, if you really want to make both sides mad, uh, just say the words. Uh, Clark and Van Til were pretty much arguing the same thing, and then <laughs> just sit back and 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 watch the the downvotes happen. It's it's That's a right. it's a fun a fun thing to happen. <laughs> uh, and then the second major apologist of the uh, the 1950s was uh, uh, Edward John Carnell, 
he, he uh, lived 1919 to 1967. He was another new evangelical who was president of Fuller Seminary uh, for much of the 1950s. Carnell's books uh, set forth kind of a semi-presuppositional apologetic that approached Christianity as a hypothesis to be uh, verified by showing that it alone is systematically consistent. And so that was the idea of his book. Christianity was systematically consistent and practically livable. Right. And so that was Carnell. And he was kind of a, the, the second major uh, apologist that was responding to Van Til. And then the third major apologist to emerge in the 50s was Stuart Hackett. Unlike the apologists mentioned so far, Hackett was avowedly non-Calvinistic. And he called for the resurrection of theism. <laughs> in a book uh, of uh, that title. And as a rational philosophical system, he, he defended the traditional theistic proofs, right? So the cosmological, ontological, and that sort of thing, and offered one of the first detailed critiques of Van Til. Well, and then I get the privilege of talking about William Lane Craig, who uh, probably, uh, when we think of apologetics, I almost think he's probably the the, the first name to come to mind uh, when when someone talks about apologetics, at least at least probably in 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 our time. And so he's a student of Hackett and has published a number of major apologetic works in which he moved from the position similar to Hackett's to a more eclectic one. Craig's writing are evenly divided between sophisticated defenses of the existence of God based primarily on philosophical and scientific forms of cosmological arguments and equally sophisticated historical and theological defenses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so uh, if you've ever seen him debate, uh, his philosophical milieu uh, really comes about. Uh, he's he's really quick on 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 uh, the the formal fallacies uh, that uh, come about in in debates, and so you uh, you you can either hate that or you can love that. Uh, <laughs> but also in um, in Lee Strobel's uh, case for uh, Christ, uh, uh, maybe case for Creator, uh, one of the cases. Um, uh, <laughs> Craig is one of the people interviewed as well, and I think he does uh, a, a really good job of um, of setting the framework for the rest of Strobel's work as well. All right. So in the 1970s, then, Van Til's most notable critic was John Warwick Montgomery. He was a Lutheran apologist, and Montgomery inspired, especially by the 19th century legal scholar and apologist Samuel Greenleaf, contended for an evidentialist, empirically-based apologetic that focused on the historical argument for the resurrection of Jesus based on principles of legal evidence. Evidentialists in Montgomery School of Thought also generally accord more weight to scientific evidences for creation than to philosophical arguments for God's existence. Mm -hmm. So here, clearly, uh, Montgomery was a what we will come to see as an evidentialist with regard to his apologetic method. Right. Well, also critical of Van Til was Norman Geisler, an evangelical scholar who argued for a classical apologetic based mainly on the thoughts of Thomas Aquinas. And so uh, we'll uh, definitely cover uh, Geisler again uh, later on in this book. Um, uh, we've, uh, I, I, I think he's a, uh, He's a very interesting person to uh, look at, too, because uh, uh, when it comes to things like um, uh, the the uh, persecuity of scripture, of 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 um, uh, 
of having uh, confidence that uh, it is God's word. Um, he's he's in there, but he's also not of the reform camp, but also he is, uh, rubs elbows with a lot of uh, those people as well. Um, he had a great book debate with uh, Dr. James White on Calvinism, and he's not a Calvinist. So um, uh, Geisler uh, was a phenomenal uh, author, and, and um, um, no one could say he was a slouch when it came to apologetics. So... Uh, he's definitely a a uh, a scholar and a, a and a leader uh, in this twentieth uh, century, uh, late twentieth century um, uh, group of uh, apologists. Well, another apologist who published apologetic works in the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies was Francis Schaeffer, nineteen twelve to nineteen eighty four. Uh, if you haven't read anything by Schaefer, uh, read it, but don't look at the copyright and see if he's talking about exactly your time, because it seems yeah. to be uh, the man was was prophetic or yeah. uh, understood cycles of human <laughs> human behavior. <laughs> but like Van Til, Schaefer emphasized the need to challenge non-Christian presuppositions, especially the relativism that became so prevalent in Western culture during the tumultuous 1960s. Uh, some of his uh, writings on abortion uh, is, is amazing. Um, he really understood the the medium of media and uh, and his uh, library academy uh, is is something when we talked to Nancy Piercy uh, we definitely had to, we had to ask her about uh, her relationship with uh, with with Schaefer and and being at library uh, it's uh, it's amazing uh, the 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 kind of anti hippie movement but co-opting certain parts of uh, hippieism <laughs> that came about that uh, that uh, I, I, I kind of view Schaefer in, in that realm with. And also like Vintel, Schaefer criticized apologetic arguments that were based on probabilities rather than certainties. Yeah. Uh, again, uh, uh, just a, a, a phenomenal person to to study and just um, uh, understood the need for uh, Christianity to be involved in culture as well. And not, and not just a negative critique, but also putting forth positive uh, argumentation. In fact, some of his writings on apologetics uh, as it goes to the human psyche when it comes to art and music and beauty uh, is 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 uh, so different from uh, the apologetic books that you'll read of the time or even now uh, that I think we're only now getting into, oh, culture actually matters uh, 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 along with these uh, philosophical mind thoughts of of, of God. And so um, uh, his, his, his work is just, uh, you know, again, pick up a book and, and, and read it. Yeah. Good. Yeah. And so during the same period, the reformed philosopher Alvin Plantica published his God and other minds. And so in this and other books, Plantica led the way in developing a school of thought known as the new reformed epistemology, which was not uh, influenced positively or negatively, our authors suggest, by uh, Van Til. Plantica <laughs> argued that belief in God is rationally justified, even if the believer cannot offer any evidence for that um, for that belief, right? So, you know, he suggested that we can have belief in God without our evidence, basically, is what he's suggesting here, right? Mm -hmm. And so just, for instance, just as we have rational belief in other things, notably the existence of other human minds, right? <laughs> uh, you know, even if we can't prove with evidence that they exist, right? So how do I know that, you know, or how does Patrick know that I have a mind? Right. You can't see it, you know, you can't taste it, feel it, touch it. So there's really, you know, I uh, could be some automaton, right, that's talking to him. In fact, in these days, I very well could be, 
with the <laughs> advent of AI and everything else, right? And well, so the, 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 <laughs> the fact that that people that believe uh, claim that they believe that write books. Who are you yeah. writing books to if you don't yeah. believe that there are other minds? Yeah. Oh, I'm just That's... tricking. I'm just tricking the 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 agent Smiths of the Matrix to buy my book and give me money. No, That's right. you write books. Right. You believe and, other minds. Exactly. And so Plantico said, just like we can believe that you know other people have minds, or that the you know the the universe just didn't pop into existence five minutes ago with all our memories attached, and, uh, attached, and yet we don't have real evidence for that, right? So we can believe in the existence of God. Mm -hmm. And so the focus of the new reformed epistemology that uh, Plantica led is on justifying belief uh, rather than challenging unbelief, right? So it's justifying our belief in God rather than challenging unbelief. And yet its approach has some affinities with presuppositionalism, as we'll see here uh, yeah. as we go. Perhaps most notably, it's rejection of evidentialism, that is the claim that beliefs are rational only as they are justified by appeals to evidence. Again, you know, Plantica said, you know, there are things that we believe even without evidence. Right. And and uh, he suggested belief in God is, is, is like those types of things. Yeah. Yeah. His, his warrant of belief is, uh, is pretty impressive. It's, it's held by, uh, uh reformed and non-reformed people, um, uh, uh, in the counterpoint series of, uh, five views of apologetics, uh, William Lane Craig sings his praises, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, uh, really respects uh, Plantica. If you're going to read Plantica, I would always start with his small books because even his small books are going to take you a while to understand exactly <laughs> what you're supposed to get out of it. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it, 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 uh, it's always like reading um, uh, A Clockwork Orange where there's this kind of uh, language uh, that's that's in Clockwork Orange where it's like this, uh, this um, um, uh, separate language. And if you read the book longer, you kind of, you're immersed into it enough that you understand it. But if you put it down and walk away from it for a couple of days, you kind of got to get used to it again. That's how I view reading Plantica is like, yeah. if I stay in it long enough. And so I pick short books, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I, I kind of understand more of what he's talking about, but uh, I shouldn't put it down. So I'm, I'm not going to break out the three volume set uh, anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. And he gave a lot of his, you know, it's full of intricate argumentation is what you know is what makes it kind of uh, feel like that but yeah he's yeah yeah uh, but i mean there is brilliant stuff there and even even someone who uh might not like the ideas of of um of probability some of the argumentation does really really good with understanding exactly how probability could actually help uh with the justification of of belief or warrant of of belief as well well, the growing diversity of approaches to study and practice of apologetics has made it necessary to devise some ways of classifying these approaches and sorting out various issues over which they differ. Well, guess what? That's what this book does. In the next <laughs> chapter, we'll present the overall, uh, the overview of these issues and offer an analysis of the major apologetic approaches. And so we'll see that in the, in the next uh, chapter. And that'll help us kind of sort out these things and put these various ideas into these four categories that our authors want, to, want us to understand. Uh, they tell us that this preceding survey of the history of apologetics illustrates the wide variety of approaches uh, that have been developed to defend the Christian faith since the first century. 
Christian apologists have faced different challenges, as we mentioned, right? Each kind of generation had its own challenges and from different quarters at different times, and they have sought to defend their faith in a variety of ways. And so coming to terms with these issues and approaches then is the uh, purpose of this book. And so again, as I mentioned, we're going to spend the next chapter looking at these four types of apologetic systems. Right. Right. So we'll we'll uh, kind of bring up the four. We'll talk about uh, um, uh, kind of what they are in general and then what they're ex- exactly um, looking at. And so um, uh, join us uh, for the next time when we cover chapter three, the issues and methods in apologetics. And so um, hopefully uh, you got a lot out of that. Um, uh, again, uh, uh, cut off the the first uh, th- uh, kind of three chapters of, of this book, and you've got yourself a really good overview of apologetics, uh, the history of apologetics. And so um, um, the people that we covered um, in this episode and the previous one uh, will come up again. Uh, we'll see them uh, part of these groups or at least informing um, uh, different aspects of the people that are brought up and then uh, informing the ideas and presentations and coverage of what uh, uh, what the authors um, have picked as far as questions that must be answered uh, by all of the, the, the different methods. And so uh, we'll do that next time. Uh, so hopefully uh, the, uh, we've wet your whistle enough for the historical approach of, of understanding of the apologetic methods and seeing that you can't really cut them up uh, like you can d- in different parts of history that um, uh, that the responses and the positive approaches or the positive negative approaches or only the negative approaches kind of come up at various different times in different parts of church history. And so um, um, there's there's a lot there. There's a lot more to cover. Uh, there's a lot more that this book covers that we didn't cover. Uh, and there's a lot more that uh, are, is out there that w- we should read uh, from our first-hand sources so that we understand that we're, we're getting not uh, some uh, filtered uh, understanding of, of, of uh, history, but of, of those who uh, were actually either wanting to critique or uh, uh, make our heroes. And so uh, hopefully we've helped to do that and encourage you to uh, look beyond uh, this book and others. And so uh, we'll see you next time for chapter three as uh, we delve more into faith as its reasons. And we'll see what those reasons are. Thanks for joining <laughs> us and we'll see you next time. See you next time.